Welcome. Thank you for choosing to join Drs. Matthew Weir and Javed Butler for this online activity, Breaking the Cycle in Cardiorenal Anemia Syndrome, the practice-changing role of IV iron at the CKD heart failure interface. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from American Region and presented by Creative Educational Concepts. To claim credit for this activity, be sure to complete the post-test questions and the evaluation. So now I'd like to turn our focus onto the first part of our discussion today, and that is the vicious cycle of the cardiorenal anemia syndrome. So how does one best describe this syndrome? Well, as you can see in this graphic here in the lower right-hand corner, it is a complex interrelationship between cardiac renal function and anemia. Each of the conditions can cause the other to get worse, and thus they are all linked. And that's why the therapeutic rationale for correcting the anemia may be helpful for slowing the progression of heart failure and CKD and improve patient outcomes. This provides a much more detailed perspective of this cardiorenal anemia triad. As you can see, there is indeed a vicious cycle that's formed. Perhaps the most concerning part is decreased left ventricular function, which increases obviously wall tension, BNP. It can lead to left ventricular hypertrophy, dilatation, myocardial cell death, and cardiac fibrosis, and ultimately to congestive heart failure. This, of course, may lead to tissue hypoxia, leading to greater problems with inflammation, resistance to erythropoietin, and activation of numerous neurohormonal systems, including the sympathetic nervous system, the renin-angiotensin system, and antidiuretic hormone. This results in intrarenal vasoconstriction, greater sodium and water retention, and you can see how that can make heart failure worse. So we have to consider therapeutic initiatives, which will break this vicious cycle. Certainly one of the strategies is to improve or correct anemia and delve into the issues of iron deficiency and diminished erythropoietin production. It's important to note that anemia worsens progression of heart failure and CKD and makes both increasingly refractory to appropriate treatments. And you can see the many different aspects of anemia and how it interferes with cardiorenal relationship that we see in our patients. It's quite broad. A larger picture, which provides the cardiorenal relationship here, I think is illustrative of the major concerns about the activation of the neurohormonal systems, particularly the central, excuse me, the sympathetic nervous system and the renin-angiotensin system, and how these can interrelate with inflammation and oxidative stress. This ultimately leads to increasing hepcidin levels and interferes with the normal iron delivery of two erythrocytes for manufacture. And this is a very serious problem, which interrelates with the problems that we see with anemia. So the other issue is with diminished renal function, there is also diminished erythropoietin function. And the net result of impaired iron delivery and diminished EPO is you run into problems with worsening anemia and thus the cardiorenal anemia syndrome then becomes a vicious cycle. So we have to correct this in our patients. As you can see in this graphic here, a large percentage of US adults are estimated to have reduced kidney function. We know that anemia becomes more prevalent 
in people with lower levels of GFR, particularly as it drops below 45. And it's very prevalent once the GFR drops below 30. And it's important to note that many patients aren't adequately treated in this regard. As you can see here, with declining kidney function, as you move from your left to your right, you can see how much more prevalent anemia is, particularly with much lower hemoglobin levels, that is below 10. And as I'll discuss a little bit later, we really try to maintain hemoglobin levels in the 10 to 11 range for optimal quality of life and to improve long-term clinical outcomes. Let me now turn our attention to the prevalence of anemia in heart failure. This may come as a surprise to you. We've all recalled that anemia is associated with declining kidney function, but believe it or not, anemia and iron deficiency is common in patients with heart failure. And it's common even in the setting where there is still reasonable kidney function. So there are other aspects of heart failure itself which predispose to the development of anemia, most important of which is iron deficiency, as you can see uh, shown here. And appreciate how much more prevalent it becomes as you move from your left to right, where the New York Heart Association levels go from one to two to three to four, and the iron deficiency is the black box at the top. So let's now discuss the issue of functional iron deficiency. And I think this is also a very important concern that we need to be aware of. And it's very common as you get older. And as you can see here, Many people with heart failure have anemia. We've already discussed that. And many of them are iron deficient by a variety of different definitions as shown here, either lower serum ferritin or a TSAT less than 20%. But what I'll also discuss moving forward is that many patients have what we call functional iron deficiency, and that is the iron is trapped in storage sites and is not available to be transported to the bone marrow to participate in the manufacture of new erythrocytes. And this is an important issue, and it's largely caused by underlying inflammation. Now, this can be infection, it can be inflammation from atherosclerosis, or it can be inflammation related to what I discussed earlier, and that is the cardiorenal syndrome with remarkable activation of a number of different neurohormonal systems. But I think the important consideration is, is that hepcidin may be the central part of the problem. It is a protein which is an acute phase reactant, which interferes with many different aspects of iron delivery and usage. And this creates a great risk for functional iron deficiency. So we have to come up with strategies to suppress hepcidin. And unfortunately, there are really no good ways of doing that that's easy. As I'll discuss, Giving intravenous iron can overcome the hepcidin block. There are newer data suggesting that the new hypoxia-inducible uh, factor drugs may also uh, facilitate this. But this is a central problem, and treating inflammation is not as easy as it sounds in clinical practice. So it is a combination of both absolute and functional iron deficiency, which is a problem for us in practice. And you can see the definition shown here, absolute at the top, functional at the bottom, and appreciate the various levels of serum ferritin and transferrin saturation can predict which type of issue we're dealing with. Now, 
absolute iron deficiency, I think, is easy to understand. This is where we have a diminished storage pool. You still have access to it, but you just don't have that much in the body. And in all patients who have iron deficiency anemia, we should always be seeking potential sources for blood loss, particularly from the GI tract or through hemolysis. And this leads to a diminished storage pool, so there is less activity for delivery to the marrow for production of red cells. On the other hand, in the presence of inflammation and hepcidin, you may have normal storage pools, but it may be trapped and it is unable to be delivered to the marrow for the synthesis of new erythrocytes. And believe me, hepcidin is capable of many different aspects of inhibition here, not only reduced absorption, but also decreased export and decreased transportation capabilities to the marrow. So from a clinical standpoint, how do we diagnose iron deficiency in our patients with either heart failure or chronic kidney disease? The key laboratory measures I've already touched upon, including serum ferritin and TSAT. Serum ferritin strongly reflects chronic iron stores, whereas the TSAT is more mobile and does fluctuate depending upon various ambient levels of iron in the circulation and in its relationship with transferrin, which is its uh, uh, transportation binding program uh, uh, protein. So in patients with heart failure, with or without CKD, ferritin levels less than 100 or less than 300 with a transferrin saturation less than 20% is a very common applied definition to identify iron deficiency. And here's a picture which provides perspective in this regard. Typically, transferrin saturations above 50% are quite robust, and this is shown on the vertical axis on your left, whereas below 20% is often indicative of uh, iron deficiency anemia. On the other hand, as you move from your left to the right and the serum ferritin levels rise, one can see that this is a situation where you may have more than enough iron in the body, but it is trapped and it's unable to be delivered to the marrow or erythrocyte production. And this is where functional iron deficiency starts to come into play. And you can certainly see that where above a ferritin of about 500, and this is a matter of debate and discussion, but certainly levels above 800 or 1,000, if you are still with a low TSAT. This is definitely a situation where the iron is trapped, there's more than enough in the body, and you just can't get it to where it needs to go to manufacture erythrocytes. This is a complicated table, and so what I'd like to do is to walk you through it carefully. And by no means is this a perfect outline of what we're dealing with, but provides what I would describe as broad generalizations about the relationship between ferritin, TSAT, and what types of anemia problems you're facing. Certainly, if you look to your left and the serum ferritin is below 30, you are running low. The tank is nearly empty, and it's best to give some iron, even if the TSAT is above 20%. On the other hand, as serum ferritin rises, if you move from your left to your right, let's look to the far right. Serum ferritin's over 800. Again, this is an area of some conversation because I, I can tell you in clinical practice and dialysis patients, I use a cutoff of 1200 before I stop giving iron because again, IV iron can help overcome a hepcidin block. So you have to carefully individualize here. Certainly with serum ferritins in the 5 to 800 range with a low TSAT, that is below 20%, you need some IV iron here. 
above 20%, I'd still be considering giving it if the hemoglobin remains low and the patients are EPO unresponsive. Certainly, as you move further to your left in serum ferritins, three to 500, most patients will benefit from some IV iron here if their TSAT is below 30% or so. So to finish my initial segment here, the whole idea here is to treat to target, realizing that every patient is an individual and that you cannot entirely generalize based on the numbers I just shared with you previously. But we do have some analogies that we can draw. We can utilize the TSAT and the ferritin level to guide some of the important decision-making about how best to treat individual patients. And as I said, we need appropriate testing. We need to be sure that there are no iron losses that we might otherwise miss. Uh, and of course, then we need to identify with the T-set and the ferritin what may be the most appropriate ways to provide treatment. And so what I'd like to do at this point is to turn the program over to my friend and colleague, Dr. Butler, to speak a little bit more about how iron anemia and the cardiorenal anemia syndrome fit in with regard particularly to heart failure. Thank you, Dr. Weir, for that uh, excellent background, pathophysiology of iron deficiency, how it occurs, why it occurs, the issue, important issue of hepcidin, which uh, a lot of the time uh, busy clinicians may or may not be able to think through uh, those nuances. So let me turn over now to some of the clinical data and the clinical trial data uh, in that uh, respect. So the first thing that I would want to take a few minutes and talk about uh, is to reemphasize this hepcidin issue. So you have mentioned the issue, you know, chronic inflammatory diseases like heart failure, CKD in, the, in, in, in this pro-inflammatory environment, your hepcidin is uh, upregulated and hepcidin can affect both, right? So it can impact uh, iron absorption from the gut. So you can have absolute problems with iron or the transport of iron from hepatocyte and macrophages for functional use by the metabolizing uh, cells in the body as well. Uh, so uh, it can be associated with the problem of uh, functional iron deficiency as well. Uh, but are these just theoretical considerations or is this a real issue? So uh, one of the studies that looked at that was the iron out study. As you know, this was a study of oral iron replacement in patients with heart failure that was uh, supported by the NIH. And what this invest, these investigators did was that they gave oral iron. So one, we know that the oral iron uh, therapy uh, is not well absorbed uh, and does not lead to improvement in patients' outcomes. And that's why we focus so much on intravenous replacement because of the inef uh, inefficiencies in oral iron uh, uh, relating to uh, repletion of iron stores. But what they did was that at uh, baseline and then at uh, week 16, uh, then they measured the iron indices and correlated that uh, with the hepcidin levels at baseline. So looked at the pro-inflammatory state, the hepcidin level state, divided the patients across the quartiles of hepcidin levels, and then looked at what happens to iron replacement orally over a 16-week uh, period. And as is shown in the result, uh, hepcidin levels correlated with all three issues. So patients who had a higher hepcidin level, as the hepcidin levels increased, there was decrease in iron bioavailability, as assessed by uh, percentage change in uh, uh, transferrin saturation. If you look at uh, uh, soluble transferrin uh, rece uh, receptor levels uh, or cellular iron levels surrogate, that was also decreased. And then the iron stores, as you look uh, by changes in ferritin uh, levels, were also decreased as well. So this is really not just a theoretical consideration. It tells us two things. One, is that this pro-inflammatory hepcidin-related biology affecting uh, oral iron uh, absorption and iron replacement is real, as we are seeing uh, from the data here. And that is why 
oral iron replacement does not work, uh, we need to give uh, IV iron to the patient. So what are the studies that have shown that um, uh, IV iron replacement uh, leads to improved outcomes? And this is really important because no matter what we talk about uh, from a pathophysiologic perspective, at the end of the day, there is always a question whether a marker uh, uh, is a prognostic marker or a risk factor. So is iron deficiency just a prognostic marker? Or is it related uh, to the pathophysiology of the disease such that if you were to replace iron, that you would improve patient's outcome? So this is important. So there's a lot of studies in the heart failure state uh, and uh, CKD uh, that has been uh, tested with the use of IV replacement. Uh, let me go over the studies that have been done in the heart failure space and also mention some of the studies. So this is really exciting growing area and we will learn a lot more uh, in the near future as well. So one of the first studies that looked at this question was FAIR HF trials. So they used uh, iron deficiency, pretty standard definition that uh, we have used uh, uh, ferritin less than 100 uh, or uh, between 100 and 300 because ferritin is an acute phase reactant. So it could be elevated despite of the fact that you may have uh, functional iron deficiency. So if your uh, ferritin was either less than 100 or between 100 to 300, but your TSATs were less than 20. So that was the definition that was used. Regardless whether you have anemia or not, these patients were included. So as you've discussed, Regardless whether you have anemia or not, iron deficiency is associated with worse outcomes. Why? Because there are two issues. One is uh, oxygen delivery and the other is oxygen utilization. So the, the clear-cut connection is oxygen delivery. So if you have chronic uh, iron deficiency, you develop iron deficiency anemia, that anemia then leads to decreased uh, capacity to transport uh, oxygen to the metabolizing tissues, and then you have worse outcomes. So that is, that is a pretty linear association. But what we sometimes forget, that there are so many enzymes in the body that really require iron for optimal functioning. The ATP generation from mitochondria requires iron. Myoglobin requires iron. Your muscle function requires iron. Soluble guanylate cyclase, which is a ubiquitous enzyme all over the body and regulates uh, vascular function, cardiac function, renal function requires iron. So even if you don't have anemia, if you just have iron deficiency, you can still have worse outcomes. So the important question is not only that if you were to replete iron by giving IV iron replacement, will you improve outcomes? but is that outcome also seen both in patients with or without anemia. So FAIR-HF2, the first uh, study that came out, uh, you know, really made us for the first time uh, think about iron deficiency, not as a risk marker, but as a risk factor that repletion makes uh, uh, outcomes get better, got published in New England Journal of Medicine. The primary endpoint was a dual primary endpoint of patient self-global assessment of how they are feeling, and also New York Heart Association functional class uh, improvement. So symptomatic improvement improvement, but also looked at other outcomes, quality of life and health status scores like KCCQ, six-minute walk test. And the bottom line is uh, that uh, the trial was positive uh, in every which way you can think about it. So at the bottom are the iron indices. And uh, by giving IV iron, one, one can see that as compared to placebo, iron was repleted and the ferritin level and the TSAT uh, levels went up. And those patients who did not have uh, uh, anemia, their hemoglobin uh, remained about the same, but those that did have anemia, their uh, hemoglobin concentration went up uh, uh, as well. But what is interesting is that the first time the investigator actually noted improvement in symptomatology was as early as week four. So not only are you seeing the benefit, but you're seeing the benefit relatively early. And then during the course of the trial, the rest of the trial, uh, you saw the benefit. So here you can see there was practically no interaction whatsoever, whether or not you are anemic, whether you're hemoglobin level is less than 12 or greater than 12, did not matter. Your global assessment improved and your New York Heart Association class improved. And as I said, uh, in a bunch of secondary endpoints like uh, health status, quality of life, functional capacity, six-minute walk test, uh, uh, Euroqual, uh, quality of life scores, all of those improved as well. So subsequently, to confirm these results, the trial name was Confirm HF. So Confirm HF was a little bit uh, different than uh, the, the first trial uh, in the sense 
that uh, the enrollment criteria was EF less than uh, 45. That was pretty much the same as fair HF as well, although it required EF of less than 40 if you're NYHA class one. Uh, but here, uh, patients were included if your hemoglobin level was less than 15, whereas in fair HF, uh, your hemoglobin was between nine and 13.5. So a little bit of a higher range of hemoglobin was included. And the primary endpoint in this case was functional capacity, uh, which is a six minute walk test. But other uh, health status measures and symptomatology was also measured. And very much, uh, it was a replica of fair HF2. It really confirmed HF, confirmed the results of fair HF trial. Here you can see there was about a 30 meter improvement in six minute walk test. 30 meter improvement in six minute walk test is considered to be clinically significant, correlates uh, with improvement in KCCQ scores as well, and other scores like fatigue score got better as well. So with these two studies, the fact that in outpatients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction, uh, uh, iron repletion leads to improvement in functional capacity, quality of life, and six-minute walk test was basically confirmed. But now we have opened up a whole series of more questions that we need to answer. The first question is, is it only functional capacity, quality of life, or will you improve patients' uh, clinical endpoints also like heart failure, hospitalization, cardiovascular mortality, uh, uh, et cetera? Uh, will this work in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction because everything that we talked about, oxygen carrying capacity or enzymatic function uh, leading to uh, poor function in the uh, in the presence of uh, iron deficiency, all of those things are equally applicable to HFPEF. So will it work in patients with HFPEF as well? And then lastly, the patients uh, who are really sick uh, and are in the hospital setting, so hospitalized patients, will they also benefit? So we have some answers uh, from these studies and some of the studies are ongoing and we will certainly uh, learn a lot more. Uh, but to put the two studies together, fair HF and confirm a little bit different inclusion criteria, nevertheless confirmed uh, the benefit in terms of functional capacity and quality of life. But although these two studies were not designed and were not powered for clinical endpoints, combining these two studies and some of the other studies in the field to look at the clinical uh, event rate as secondary exploratory uh, analyses. So again, this is not, these data were not designed to look at that question, but by the time you have three or four studies, you have eight, 900 patients, there is enough of a critical mass to kind of do a meta-analysis to see what is going on. And as you can see, ubiquitously, the clinical outcomes got better as well. And this is not unexpected because quality of life scores and functional capacity uh, correlates very well with clinical endpoint because it's the hard heart failure milieu that gets better. And if it gets better, other clinical outcome tends to get better as well. Look at the benefit in heart failure hospitalization, the third line from the bottom. I mean, that rate was knocked down by more than 50%, highly statistically significant result. Other endpoints, most of them reached the nominal statistical significance. Some of them for mortality were borderline positive, did not really hit p-value of 0.05. But nevertheless, one gets the sense that the benefits were seen across these outcomes. But these were secondary analysis, and we really need prospective data to further elucidate these benefits. What about in-hospital settings? So that was tested in this trial called a firm AHF. And again, as we can see, these two curves separated, uh, separated uh, quite wide. Uh, these were the patients in the hospital setting who had uh, iron deficiency were given uh, iron uh, repletion. The first dose was given in the hospital setting, and then the second dose was given at week six, were followed patients who had persistent iron deficiency uh, were given subsequently uh, uh, shots at uh, uh, 12 weeks and 24 weeks potentially as well. And uh, here one can see, you know, there's a secondary analysis already published about improvements in quality of life scores at, uh, uh, as well. Uh, but there was a 21% relative risk reduction in the primary composite of cardiovascular death, heart failure, hospitalization, primarily carried for by heart failure hospitalization that were reduced by 26% relative risk reduction as well. Now, as you can see, the p-value here was 0.059. It was almost there, did not make it, except that this trial ran into, like many other trials, problems with COVID. Because when COVID hit, uh, there was a sharp decline in hospitalizations. The patients were worried. They stopped coming into the hospital. And this trial, the latter part of the trial was right in the middle of the, the, the peak of the COVID epidemic. So the investigators had already pre-specified uh, that they will do an analysis uh, in the pre-COVID era. And if you take COVID into account, these results become statistically significant as well. Now, this is a 
fascinating study. I absolutely love this study because we are talking about iron deficiency by itself, improving outcome, but we are not talking about necessarily iron deficiency actually impacting the benefit of other therapies as well. Remember, I talked to you about so many other enzymes require iron, and if other therapies are dependent on those enzymes to improve outcome in the absence of uh, uh, iron repletion, they may be less effective also. So this is iron CRT. So these are the patients who get cardiac resynchronization therapy, and they did not robustly uh, responded. They had iron deficiency, were given iron repletion uh, versus uh, continued. And one can see that after cardiac resynchronization therapy, if you're iron deficient and you replete iron, there is substantial improvement in cardiac systolic function, ejection fraction, and symptoms get uh, uh, better. LV re reverse remodeling gets better as well. So this opens up a whole wide variety of doors for other medications like soluble guanolide cyclase uh, stimulators and stuff. And whether or not we should be thinking about uh, iron deficiency when we are giving those therapies concomitantly as well. Now, to just end my presentation, there are a whole bunch of other studies going on uh, in the heart failure space uh, as well. Ironman, HeartFit, FairHF2, and FairHFPEF. So FairHFPEF, I won't discuss a whole lot because this is a small earlier experience to start learning about epidemiology and some benefits for in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Hopefully, this will lead to some larger outcomes trial. HeartFit and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction has completed enrollment within the next year or so. We will uh, get the result. This is chronic heart failure, largest trial ever done, and this is uh, powered for mortality, morbidity, or changes in six-minute walk tests, so we should be getting the results pretty soon. And at the tail end of that will be the Ironman trial. Uh, HeartFit is using uh, ferric carboxymaltose, uh, whereas this trial is using uh, uh, iron isomaltoside, a different iron preparation, and again, a outcome-focused study uh, looking at the outcomes, and this trial probably will be following a few months uh, after the other trial as well. So at this point, I will turn over to Dr. Weir to discuss some renal trials with iron repletion with us as well. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Butler. That was a very nice uh, presentation putting together what I've would find very interesting observations and that it's iron deficiency as much as anemia, which are potential problems that need to be corrected uh, in the patient with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. And I think most people would have suspected anemia itself, but not specifically iron deficiency. So there may be something about the correction of iron deficiency. Uh, which is uh, critically important uh, for pump function. So let me uh, turn our attention back to the studies uh, in people with, uh, with chronic kidney disease who are not on uh, dialysis. There actually have been a number of them that have been completed. You see them listed here. And I think what's important to observe is the consistency of the observations that people benefit with treatment with iron administration, IV iron administration. And one can see that here. This is a study done with ferric carboxymaltose, which illustrates a number of different and important benefits for patients not just simply correcting hemoglobin per se, but obviously addressing changes in TSAT, addressing changes in uh, serum ferritin. And I think perhaps most critical is in the upper left-hand corner, and that is proportion of patients with diminished uh, uh, events. And th this is really the critical aspect here of how to improve clinical outcomes uh, in patients. And one has to remember too, that there are differences in many of the iron preparations. Um, one of the main difficulties for outpatients to get IV iron is just how much you can give in one intravenous administration. And I compare for you here, two different preparations. One in the top, iron isomaltoside, where you can give 1,000 milligrams in one dose, versus iron sucrose, 
where you need five doses of 200 milligrams. Now, again, they both work, um, but one is a whole lot easier to give uh, than the other for the net benefit of what you can see there, which is improvement in hemoglobin. And that, I think, is really uh, the critical issue, uh, changing hemoglobin and perhaps impacting uh, cardiovascular events shown on the right. And this study obviously is a very interesting one, uh, showing actual differences uh, between the two groups. I also think it's important to highlight the fact that giving IV iron is not the same thing as giving oral iron. Um, clearly, oral iron is not well absorbed. It may cause constipation. The stools turn dark black. And patients get upset with that, um, and they often are not compliant. It needs to be taken three times a day with meals, and less than 10% is absorbed, particularly if the patients are taking proton pump inhibitors, which again reduces gastric acid. That's why IV iron, if you compare studies being done here, comparing ferromoxetol versus oral iron, Look at the difference in serum ferritins after five weeks and look at the TSAT differences. I mean, it's almost a doubling of what you see in the transferrin saturation. And this should not come as a surprise. Likewise, studies done with iron sucrose, again, intravenous, you compare that with oral iron. Uh, again, there is really no comparison. And part of that is it's not well, uh, oral iron's not well absorbed. And part of it is the patients just don't want to take it. So that's why there are many more interests now in focusing on IV iron preparations. And certainly, as Dr. Butler covered in his nice presentation, both the heart failure guidelines and the KDGO or kidney guidelines do specifically endorse uh, using uh, intravenous iron for correction of anemia or iron deficiency. The heart failure guidelines specifically endorse ferrocarboxymaltose simply because, as Dr. Br uh, uh, Butler presented to you, that was what was used in uh, the clinical trials, FERRIGEP. So, Again, I want to emphasize that fascinatingly, this is not just for anemic patients, but it's for people with iron deficiency and heart failure, that in fact, it does make a difference. And that's why it made uh, the guidelines, as you can see here. Likewise, it also has made the guidelines for uh, the conglomerate group of ACC, AHA, and HFSA with regard to using IV iron. and recommended in preference instead of just giving EPO. Well, first of all, EPO doesn't work if you're not adequately iron replete. That's the first point. And second, in the one study called TREAT, where it was done in people um, with diabetes and chronic kidney disease, there was potential harm if you used EPO and pushed the hemoglobin too high. So there is this sweet spot <clears throat> in terms of how best to use these medications in our patients uh, with heart disease. And you can see these explained nicely here. And the kidney guidelines, as I mentioned to you, encourage iron status evaluation, which is at the bottom, typically every three months if you're treating people. And as you can see above, if you are treating with iron agents, a number of important recommendations here, and specifically targeting getting the TSAT above 30% and the ferritin above 500 if possible, and obviously individualizing these decisions based on the patient's needs. So when one examines the clinical utility of IV iron in the cardiorenal anemia syndrome. Consider obviously the advantages of using IV iron. And as you can see, 
there are changes in hemoglobin and T-set. But what also is interesting to me is if you look on the right-hand panel, you actually see reductions in CRP and obviously reductions in BNP. Uh, and so uh, th this is interesting, and it really raises question whether or not IV iron may in a sense be taming some of the inflammation, which then reduces the hepcidin, which allows correction of anemia, but there may be something about IV iron in and of itself, which may have practical benefits for cardiac function. And if you look at the clinical utility of IV iron in this syndrome, one can see when studied that there are important improvements in hemoglobin with using IV iron alone, not even with an ESA. So I would submit to you, if you don't need an ESA, don't use an ESA because IV iron is less expensive and probably more likely to target the underlying hepcidin block inflammatory syndrome, which may be going on in that individual patient. And you can clearly see that here. Sure, the hemoglobin at the top is kind of the, the target of IV iron alone versus combined therapy. But other than that, Basically, the corrections with IV iron alone are more than sufficient for helping the very vast majority of patients. So as you can see here, IV iron monotherapy achieves similar efficacy as using IV iron with an ESA. Notably, IV iron had achieved marked reductions in platelet count while the combo uh, arm did not. Again, maybe that's a potential uh, I factor that may be important in reducing cardiovascular events, who knows, it may be related to a reduction in inflammation. And realize that if you look at the studies, it's an effective therapeutic option for people with cardiorenal anemia syndrome and circumvents the need for potentially raising hemoglobin too much or unphysiologically with superphysiologic doses of EPO. And that's why, again, clinical medicine is all about efficacy, but also safety. And I think that's really the name of the game. And the next generation of IV iron products are much different than the original ones that were associated with allergic reactions and even anaphylaxis. And you can see some of them shown here, how there has been an evolution of the shell that surrounds the iron as it is delivered to the patient. And these are all quite different. And the misconception that IV iron is unsafe is based on the older data with dextran containing formulations. And needless to say, 3% is serious when it's a severe allergic reaction, let alone uh, less than a percent with anaphylaxis, but that's you know, that, that, that's the real deal. But the newer ones are not associated with the same risk. And you can see that listed uh, below. And so obviously, totally different concern from a safety standpoint. And you can see here, looking at this systematic review and a meta-analysis of a gazillion trials shown here, the no increased risk of serious adverse events with IV iron uh, compared to control. And there are just thousands of patients uh, in this analysis. I don't need to belabor all of the different uh, factors that were studied, but I think the bottom line is it's clear that the safety is there with these drugs. So I think it is fair to say all IV meds have the potential to cause hypersensitivity, but the newer IV iron preparations, this is extremely rare. There are these continuing misperceptions based on the older drugs, because these are clearly uh, not the case anymore with the newer ones. So let's now turn our attention to closing the chasm in uh, cardiorenal anemia syndrome care and focused on a case-based discussion evaluating this. 
and I'm going to rely on my colleague, Dr. Butler, to focus specifically on this particular case, simply because he is an expert in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and can speak more to this individual case you see here. Thanks, Matt. So, so let me just go over some of the uh, details of this case. Uh, I like this case because uh, this is really not a fascinoma, right? This is not some undiagnosed patient. We don't know what to do with this patient. This is just a routine patient that we all see in the clinic uh, uh, a lot of the times. Uh, and it really brings out a whole lot of questions. So DW is a 68-year-old female with a history of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. EF is around 40% NYHA class 3, hypertension, diabetes, and uh, stage 3 CKD. Uh, has had multiple hospitalizations for decompensation within the last year, uh, and is on a pretty good medical regimen, valsartan scubitril 4951 BID, metoprolol succinate 200 uh, milligrams daily, spironolactone 25 milligrams daily, uh, torsamide 20 milligrams daily, dapagliflozin 10 milligrams daily, metformin 500 BID, and then aspirin. Uh, blood pressure is not bad, but on the lower side, 108 uh, over 68, very common in patients with uh, REF, on good medical therapy. Heart rate is 64, so is adequately beta-blocked. Weight is 71 kilograms. Uh, laboratory study shows a creatinine of 1.3, GFR 43, hemoglobin 8.1, and ferritin is uh, 303 and TSATs uh, of 14. Uh, so Matt, uh, let me ask you a couple of questions on this case uh, in terms of what your, what your approach is. But before I go there, let me highlight a few things about this case. So first, uh, this person is on excellent medical therapy, but most pa people, patients in real life, are not going to be on all of these therapies. So one question is that if you see somebody today who's not doing well, who's on, uh, uh, say, half of these medications, they're only on uh, beta blockers and some RAS inhibitor, but they're not on uh, MRA or an SGLT2 inhibitor. <clears throat> Should you go ahead and optimize their therapy first, or can you go ahead and replete iron while you are optimizing those therapies? So theoretically, we always used to say uh, that, you know, this is a distinctly different disease state, iron deficiency in itself. And regardless of what your background medical therapy is, if you find somebody with iron deficiency that you need to replete uh, their iron stores per se. But now we have empiric data, like in a firm AHF was an acute heart failure trial. So there was no protocol. First of all, there was no protocol in uh, fair HF or uh, confirm anyways. But with a firm, you started with the first dose while the patients were in the hospital. So it's not that in a firm AHF, uh, you wait for you know six months to optimize medical therapy. So one thing I want to to highlight here uh, for our audience members uh, is just to make sure that we always optimize medical therapy, always give foundational therapy, try to get them on four drugs, try to get them on appropriate medical doses. But when it comes to iron deficiency, you can proceed with uh, iron repletion uh, irrespective. The second point that I want to mention here is that this patient is on the sicker end of the spectrum, right? NYHA class three symptoms, multiple heart failure hospitalizations, but you don't have to wait for the patient to get this sick. In other words, iron repletion is not some sort of Hail Mary throw and, you know, and really sick patient when nothing else is working. If you think about confirmed trial and, and fair HF trial, those those trials included patients across the spectrum of NYHA class two and class three. And the whole purpose of uh, medicine is to prevent worsening, right? You don't wait for worsening to happen. So both things are important. If you find a person with iron deficiency early on and they are not this sick, uh, replete iron so that you can avoid uh, patients getting sick, avoid getting very symptomatic as we discussed and showed some data. But of course, if you find a person like this, realize that they're, they're body is really asking for something more. And, and even after all of these drugs that they are not doing well, and, and iron repletion uh, is a good idea. So across the spectrum, uh, there are uh, good, uh, good options. Uh, so I have so much more to say about this case. But before we start talking about uh, repletion uh, per se, Matt, can I ask you a couple of questions on this case and see what your opinion is? So you know, ferritin TSAT level, uh, would you agree that this person has uh, uh, iron deficiency? And then the second question is, 
uh, you know, we are internists before nephrologists and cardiologists. Uh, so a few words on, uh, you see a hemoglobin of 8.1, what kind of other things are going in your mind? Well, thank you uh, for asking that question. Um, as I mentioned before in my presentation, just because the patient has reduced GFR, you cannot assume that anemia is due to the kidney problems. Uh, one really has to be thorough and evaluate for GI blood losses or hemolysis. Um, and so I would definitely do that, Dr. Butler. And then the other thing that is really remarkable to me here is despite this very robust guideline-based therapy, um, the patients had three hospitalizations in the past year. So this lady not only has a reduced hemoglobin, but she also is iron deficient. So she has two very good reasons for IV iron supplementation, not only to get her T set up closer to probably 30, 35%, but also to facilitate getting her hemoglobin up to 10. And certainly if correction of the iron deficiency did not get her hemoglobin in the 10 to 11 range, I would then consider using uh, a low-dose EPO strategy uh, to facilitate that uh, as well. Yeah, so completely agree with you. You know, we are at the end of the day, use our best clinical judgment if their hemoglobin yesterday was 14 and today is 8.1, really worry about GI bleeding. Uh, if it's chronic and, uh, uh, you know, worry about colon cancer and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but uh, regardless, uh, uh, iron repletion for heart failure, CKD uh, syndrome is, is important. Uh, and uh, more likely than not, you know, patients will not have colon cancer and their chronic disease will account for their symptoms. Uh, but you don't want to miss that. And then uh, you can treat their iron deficiency as well. Now, the number one thing that I will emphasize to our audience members is, is screening for iron. The biggest problem with this is uh, that we don't think about iron deficiency as much. So uh, I would assume that in advanced CKD, our nephrology colleagues are much more tuned to assessing iron levels. Although it's a class one recommendation in the heart failure guidelines uh, in real life clinical practice, not many of us uh, check uh, iron uh, in our patients. So the biggest issue is that despite of the fact that iron deficiency uh, in epidemiologic studies, as we discussed some of the data, could be present in 50, 60% of the patients and even higher in hospitalized patients at the sicker end of the spectrum, uh, many of the time these patients get completely uh, uh, undiagnosed and they don't get uh, treated per se. Now, how much iron to give them? So, you know, uh, most commonly used uh, is something called the Ganzoni uh, formula, uh, which is used, uh, which is the iron deficit is equal to body weight in kilograms times uh, target hemoglobin mi minus uh, actual hemoglobin levels and multiply by 2.4 plus, uh, you give uh, some uh, depot iron about 500 uh, milligrams. Of course, you don't have to remember uh, this formula that I uh, uh, just mentioned. You can easily find it anywhere on the, on the internet, but that can give you some idea of uh, iron replacement. And uh, in a person like this, you can give iron replacement uh, 750 milligrams of ferric carboxymaltose times two a week apart. Uh, uh, for a total of 1,500 milligrams, or you can give one shot of 1,000 milligrams uh, as well. Uh, then there is some follow-up. So remember that iron deficiency may not be completely repleted or may occur again. And the recommendation would be to follow these patients on a longitudinal basis uh, and replete iron again uh, if uh, uh, you are incompletely uh, repleted or uh, newer uh, uh, iron deficiency parameters are met. Another point that I would very strongly uh, emphasize, uh, at least to my cardiology community to consider. Uh, so, you know, uh, oral medications are easy, right? They could just sort of write it in their clinic. But when we talk about uh, IV, iron, there's a layer of complexity that you need to give. Now, of course, you don't need to uh, hospitalize these patients uh, given. And, and of course, we discussed that oral iron supplementation doesn't work. So we need to figure out a way to give uh, IV iron. So the first obstacle is that we don't 
uh, is screen patients. So it's really important to screen patients for iron deficiency. And the second uh, uh, issue is to create some systems where it's not an overt burden to give uh, uh, IV iron. So a few points that I would make. First of all, uh, it's a quick uh, uh, IV injection. Uh, you don't have to monitor the patient for long. It can be given in the outpatient setting and then the patient can go home. And then the second thing is that uh, while many of the practices may send it to what we usually call infusion center, which is largely uh, chemotherapy, cancer infusion, or uh, rheumatologic diseases, sometimes getting bed availability uh, is a little bit difficult. But remember that every place in cardiology, we have an infrastructure to give, uh, uh, to place an IV whether it is uh, stress echocardiography in our imaging suites, whether it is cardiac cath lab, whether it is our EP lab, we have the capacity to put an IV line and we do have stretchers. So if we can figure out and get a little bit of time in those suites uh, for these patients and replace them, it is not as big a burden as sometimes people think and our patients would really thank, for, thank us for it uh, because of the benefits that they uh, accrue. Uh, I don't know, Dr. Weir, uh, did I cover every point or am I? Yeah, missing? I think you did. But I think the one point you lost over quickly was about your colleagues not thinking about it. And I was going to say, even if this lady had a hemoglobin of 10.8, let's say, but still had that TSAT of 14%, see, that patient would be missed, I would submit to you, in the vast majority of cardiovascular medicine offices. Um, it- and, you know, a bunch of nephrologists might miss it too, but I still replete iron when it's that low, uh, even in my patients with CKD, with or without um, heart failure. I, I think clearly there is something about iron deficiency per se, which is, that needs to be corrected in order to improve this uh, vicious cycle syndrome that we've discussed today. Completely agree with you. You know, we have this notion of quote unquote anemia of chronic disease as if this is something that we should just ignore and and not uh, delve into uh, further. And of course, we discussed the data. So you said that if somebody's uh, hemoglobin would be, you know, 10.8, maybe they are missed. Uh, But I would suggest that the data that we have uh, is that even if their hemoglobin was 13.8 and they had these parameters that they need IV iron replacement. Now you don't want to replace uh, IV iron uh, if somebody's hemoglobin level is all the way up to 15 because you don't want that value to go up, increase the uh, viscosity of the blood. So that is sort of the upper limit, but short of that, uh, replacing iron when you meet the criteria for uh, iron deficiency, either functional or absolute is really important. Well, thank you, Dr. Butler, for uh, a nice review of that case. What I'd like to do now is to finish up by providing some summary conversation points and then uh, quickly review our questions uh, that we started the lecture with today. Um, I want to re-emphasize again that hepcidin really plays a very significant role uh, in causing functional iron deficiency. And I think this is really a critical message that we need to focus on and why IV iron appears to be so very important here. And that it is particularly in people with inflammation that interferes with iron use in the body. It's basically trapped in the reticuloendothelial system and thus becomes unavailable for use in the marrow. Moreover, hepcidin blocks intestinal absorption of iron. So we need to figure out a way to overcome that, particularly in our patients who are sick and inflamed. And so it's the administration of IV iron that we're learning about now, which does make a difference not only in increasing ferroportin, which is the transport machinery uh, for iron, but also interfering with hepcidin. And it is fascinating molecular medicine that we're still learning about in this regard with the different transporters and the way that this works. But I think we have to appreciate there is something here that we're learning about now, which may be so very important for facilitating better care for our patients. 
And so herein, again, as I've discussed, the evolution of available therapies, moving away from the iron dextran, where there were concerns about allergic reactions and even anaphylaxis, to some of the newer therapies, which absolutely are as safe as you can imagine. And as Dr. Butler pointed out, and I did as well, there are the opportunities for giving larger doses in fewer infusions to make it that much more comfortable for our patients. So as we've discussed, this lady is definitely a candidate for iron replacement therapy, specifically IV, because she is not only anemic, but she is also iron deficient. And again, heart failure patients often have right-sided volume excess. This would further interfere with her iron absorption and not only with the right, elevated right-sided pressures and increasing pressures in the portal circulation, but also the inflammation. And she can be followed and capably cared for. So as you can see, she is definitely a candidate and certainly would benefit from a simple approach of one or possibly two doses of ferric carboxymaltose or an equivalent that would make the difference for her. I would not be giving her six or seven doses of 125 milligrams or five doses of 200 milligrams. That's just, you know, that's an IV infusion every time would be a nuisance. And then you could follow her up with repeat labs in uh, 12 weeks or three months. So I'd like to thank you all for listening in. I'd like to thank my colleague, Dr. Butler, uh, for facilitating our conversation and his engaging review of the case and all of the available heart failure data. This program is CME accredited. And if you fill out the necessary paperwork, you will receive uh, credit for participating in this educational initiative. Thank you very much for listening in today. Thank you again for joining us for this educational activity focused on IV iron use in cardiorenal anemia syndrome. To claim credit, be sure and complete the post-test and the evaluation. Thank you again for your participation.